Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. This is part two of our holiday special. If you haven't heard part one, that's all right. Your enjoyment of what you're about to hear is not contingent on whether you listen to part one. Although, if you'd like to listen, you can find part one on our site at www.talkeasypod.com. Or you can just use the app you're listening with right now. As we close the year, I started to do some accounting. Today marks our 52nd episode of 2020. That 52 number was not intentional, but it's fitting. Back in March, as the pandemic began to take hold, we had a conversation internally about how to proceed forward. Should we really keep making this show? What good is a podcast when the world is falling apart anyway? What could we do that would be helpful to people, useful, in a time where many of us were asking new questions about compassion, purpose, science, civility, race? The truth is, I didn't want to make something just to make something. Or maybe, I don't know, I didn't want to ask you for your time unless it was worth your time. Because... If this year has taught all of us anything, it's that time is all we have. It's the ticking clock many of us, myself included, try so desperately to ignore. But 2020 made fools of us, didn't it? It was not possible to ignore the 330,000 Americans dead. The 1.76 million people worldwide dead. 
And although pundits and politicians of a certain ilk did their damnedest to spin the science, there was no way of shielding us from the bodies. The people, old and young, left to spend their final days isolated in a hospital bed as they said goodbye, as their time ran out. There was no way to forget those people or their ensuing caskets or the families they left behind, their children, their mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. You couldn't quite ignore that. No podcast can mend a broken heart. No conversation can heal us completely, but our hope with this show, this year and the next, is to keep us and you alive and thinking and feeling, feeling something, anything. Our hope is to engender a little kindness and reflection, to ask better questions, big and small, of ourselves and others. As Dr. Cornell West said on this show earlier this year, quoting Samuel Beckett, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. So, on that note, I look forward to failing better with you next year on this show. I hope you join me. Until then, here is part two of our holiday episode. I hope it brings you some comfort as we close out 2020, and I thank you for being here and for giving us your time. I'll see you on the other side. Hello there. This is Allison Pill. I think the biggest lesson that I learned was to think radically meaning to go to the root of whatever the thing is. I think the depth of my thought has increased and sort of the interrogation of concepts that I thought I understood. Um, When you go deeper, you're like, oh, the root is even further away from what I thought it was. So you, you start out with one thing and then you realize that, oh no, the structure is actually even beyond that. Yeah, I've been radicalized in a really interesting way, and it's a new habit of thinking that I have, of realizing how many things are interconnected, how my views on one thing are actually related to my views on everything else, specifically capitalism, white supremacy, the structures that we live in. And being radicalized about that has been, you know, sort of means a teeter-tottering between abject despair and real hope, because naming the thing is the first thing that you have to do. Um, what helped me make it through? One of the great things about this time has been new friends who I've never met in person, which is such a strange thing. Our church creative group began at the beginning of the pandemic. And while I had seen some people at service, usually we went to different ones. We didn't really interact that much. And suddenly we were doing these weekly meetings to discuss how to make Zoom church more fulfilling for all of us and to challenge ourselves to think creatively about service and 
I made my first short films because of that. And then also some other friends, some other activist friends who I've literally never met in person. And I don't know that I would have without this year and that we're from very different spots, both in the world and in our lives. And it's very exciting that you can build community and build intimacy and not necessarily have to be in the same room. Much of 2020, like that's what really got me through was this building new communities that um, the depth of which I had not experienced digitally previously. Oh, another thing that got me through, okay, and this is going to seem smarmy, but it's true, was this podcast, like really in-depth discussion with other humans in these intimate settings really did get me through. And I have told Sam this, but legitimately, there were three episodes in particular that got me through driving at night in a snowstorm and very grateful for that. Okay, what do I want in 2021? I want to maintain the depth of relationship that I've achieved in lockdown while everything starts speeding up again. Trying to maintain this concept of tree time, partly because of the overstory by Richard Powers and partly just, I mean, there's very interesting new scholarship on trees and forests. We've been taught um, so much of capitalism as this, you know, this belief that Darwin said that everything's competition in this in this fight for survival. And then, like, you think about tree time, you think about forests, and you think about these relationships that exist, and we don't know all about them, and we don't know what exchanges go on, but sort of thinking about mutual aid societies, like, that's what forests kind of live on in this, whether these relationships are altruistic or... This explanation of altruism, it's really selfish and like, yeah, okay, sure, we can explain it away that way. But sometimes it's just like, it feels good to help people. It feels like mutual aid societies work because that might be how we're supposed to live our lives. So all of this slowing down, I hope we're able to achieve something closer to trees and look at our resources and say, oh man, this... This guy really needs some some potassium or something. <laughs> We're going to send that on through. Um, they're a little nitrogen heavy over here. We're going to suck that. We're going to bring it over to the other side of the forest. and Because uh, that's just what's going to work better. So, yeah. That's what I hope for 2021 is more um, forest life. Okay. That's it. Thanks. Bye. Hello. Hey, Sam, how you doing? Hey, how are you doing? We're talking 2020, yeah? We're talking 2020. So here's where I wanted to start. For one, Hassan, thank you for coming back on. Am I one of the few people who actually says your name correctly? You're part of the new majority. So people have started to, you know, <laughs> since, since, since the Ellen interaction, it kind of created a kind of uh, domestic and global conversation about the Americanization and Westernization of names. No one has ever said Fragoso right since I was a kid, so I, I felt I needed to take it on myself to not fuck up people's names on this show. Yeah, and, and also I wanted to take some self-ownership of this too, of, hey, everybody's doing their best, so why don't we 
download the software properly at the inception. Because there's there's so many people that were like, for years I was just I was just calling you Hassan. And I go, that's partially on me too. Like I didn't I didn't stop and just go, hey man, like this is this is my birth name and we're friends. You should we're friends. Like if I respect you and you respect me, I should have the, the respect to tell you what you should call me. And then I'm sitting there on Ellen and I'm like, you did it, man. You're on daytime television and I'm like, what do you, what do you have stepping for? Like, what, do, what are we, what are we talking about here? You couldn't be on a more broad mainstream show. And so I was like, yeah, if we're saying Benedict Cumberbatch with no hesitation, then you can say Hassan. Like that's not that hard you you said uh people are generally trying to do their best i'm curious after the year we've had what have you made of this country yeah man no doubt do i think there is darkness and evil in the world irrespective of partisanship or race or creed that being said i do generally believe that individuals on their own alone in their room without devices that make them anonymous are generally good people. I don't think man, and by man, I mean man, woman, whatever, we have malice deep down in our heart. And so I think one of America's biggest illnesses is ignorance. And ignorance is actually very different than malice. Sometimes those two things get conflated. You know, we were just riffing off my name. A lot of that stuff just comes from ignorance. People don't know. People haven't met a Desi person from the South Asian subcontinent who happens to be Muslim American. They don't, they haven't met that before, right? Ellen meeting me or Rami Youssef is the first time she has met like somebody on that platform like us for the first time. I was telling Riz Ahmed that. I go, Riz, you realize when you go to Colbert or you go to these sh- this is the first time some of these big news outlets are meeting, talking, chopping it up with like a Pakistani, British, Muslim guy. I know you like that, but they don't. And that doesn't make them bad. It's just an ignorance thing. And it's just an education thing. You know, that's all. So much of what you did on Patriot Act seemed to be about combating that ignorance you're talking about. And on that front, I have to say, I called my dad before we were doing this. And I told him, oh, you know, we're doing this holiday episode. I told him who's coming on. And he said, Sam, I got to be honest with you. I'm in distress. I'm in disarray. I cannot believe that there's not going to be more Patriot Act. I showed my students it because he's a middle school teacher. He showed his students it for years. He loves this show. Wow. That means a lot. So he's upset. And I tried to tell him, you know, I think you're going to be okay, but I'll be all right. I'll be all right. When we when we spoke over the summer, it was happening, mm. and I do wonder just how do you feel about this year and, and all of that. It's so interesting that so many people have asked me, like, "Oh, wow, you know, you finished the sixth season of the show and it ended." And for me, 2020 has so been defined by another thing, which is the birth of my son. So when people are like, oh my God, this year was crazy. I'm like, oh, right. You're talking about the baby, right? Who was born during the pandemic. And they're like, no, we need season seven of Patriot. I'm like, what are we, we need more explainer video. Okay. We need more hands. We need more hands. Yeah. 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 We need more hand movements and 28 minute explainers on the downside of unfettered capitalism. Like we have a lot of that, you know? And so that to me 
when I think about 2020, the word I use to describe 2020 is severe disillusionment. And, and, and I'll tell you why. What has been so crazy is it has been a combination of extreme horror and beauty all at once. So I'll give you an example of extreme horror. In March, and if you were, if you were in New York, that second week, week of March, in my family, you know, my wife and I, we live in Hell's Kitchen. We're right next to NYU Langone West. And as the death tolls were mounting and we were still figuring out the public health aspect of how bad is this disease? I mean, people were just in straight up hazmat suits, right? Garb Remember, people were wearing garbage bags, wiping vegetables with bleach. Everyone was fighting over pasta. Remember? Like, remember March? But, but it was so eerie to see the ice trucks outside of the hospital for the bodies. So you're walking down to get coffee when you're in this kind of like garbage bag hazmat suit, as I'm seeing just kind of just stacks of bodies being loaded into these trucks. And it was a freaky, weird thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Where you're just watching such visceral horror that reminds you of war, but there are no drone strikes. Like there's no war around, but this, there's this kind of... This, this kind of looming threat. Correct. Then when we talk about beauty is I, I get home, you know, I, I take off my garbage bags and I wash my hands. I was so freaked out. You know, I still, we have a subscription to the Times and I still love the hard newspaper. But in March and April, I, I, again, we didn't know what this disease was. So I stopped reading the newspaper because I'm like, maybe germs are on the paper. We didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know about viral load and all of these sort of things. So I get, in, I get back inside and then we talk about juxtaposing it with beauty. I'm just holding my son and he has no clue about any of these things that are happening outside and i would ask myself what is more real those trucks full of dead bodies or this moment as he's smiling to me right now which one is more real in this moment you know and perhaps life is both and what i've tried to realize is maybe like life is understanding that heaven and hell can exist on earth you have to hold both of those both hold both of those concepts in real time. And it's interesting growing up as Muslim, you, you see those things as two very different things, right? Like you strive to go to heaven to avoid the hellfire. And I've started to, as I've gotten older, I, I go, perhaps these are concepts that exist in, in the world that we live through. Are you rethinking your sort of religious beliefs as you welcome a new child into this country? The big thing that I'm trying to kind of understand, things get solidified so much in your 30s, man. You know, the windows to do certain things, time becomes such, such a finite commodity. I really have to figure out what am I doing? Like, what are the core philosophical beliefs that I'm about in the art that I make? Like, real talk, because you don't have all the time in the world to do every movie, every TV show, every stand-up set. So this time that you have, what are you really saying and why are you saying it? At the same time, for me as a, as a family person, I also have to think about, like, what are you going to teach your son and daughter? Like, what is it really about? And there's a little bit of this kind of, like, Simba Mufasa type energy that I have. I'm like, what am I going to teach my two little Simbas and Nalas here? You know, like, what do I tell them about the world? And that, to me, has been the real interesting thing about 2020. I was making a joke with Bina, my wife. We were watching Daniel Tiger with my daughter. She's almost three. And the lessons in Daniel Tiger are so optimistic. 
sing you a song from one of the episodes we were watching the other day. Daniel is getting into an argument with one of his friends and the teacher comes in and sings them a song and they say, we like different things and that's just fine, but remember to be kind. And I go, adults don't even act like that. We like different things and that's just fine, but remember to be kind. Yeah, tell that to Twitter. (laughs) Tell that to like everything that is happening with civility and discourse in this country right now. I thought about this. I was like, Bean, is it wrong that we're showing her Daniel Tiger? Because the world is nothing like Daniel Tiger. And maybe adults need to watch a little bit more of Daniel Tiger. So I was going through all of these things of just like, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm showing her this stuff of what I want the world to be. But there's part of me that wants to be like, baby girl, once you grow up and you get on TikTok and Instagram and you start engaging with modernity, oh my God, all these Daniel Tiger rules go out the window. And the thing I'm trying to grapple with is figuring out how do I retain those core ethical values in a world that is chaotic, you know? I'm just trying to be happy in a world that I do not understand. What do you make of that kind of cultural talking point as Biden and Harris take office? That maybe we can sort of look at each other a little more fully, maybe integrate nuance back into our portrayals of people. Well, I think one thing that I think a lot of folks felt a sigh of relief about was just, oh, I don't have to check Twitter every day. Because remember, the president was using Twitter as his way to communicate to the American people. And, you know, it's no different than running a a creative operation or a show or a company. That sort of messaging comes from the top. And so I think there was a sigh of relief of like, hey, maybe I don't have to roll over in bed every day, pick up my phone and be like, who's the secretary of energy again? You know what I mean? But one eye open. Yeah. Just like, who's the secretary of energy? Oh, God, they're the worst. Like, you don't have to think about that. And you don't, you also don't have to think about like the unnecessary tornado of, again, lack of civility and discourse. So politicians are still going to be politicians and they're still going to be the traditional, unfortunately, the skullduggery and the backdoor lobbying and all the stuff that, that, that I find reprehensible about politics. That being said, the president won't be getting into a full-on shouting match with Roseanne. You know what I mean? Where you're like, what is this about? It's that sort of stuff. You won't have to get pulled into some of these unnecessary tornadoes, which I think is a positive sign. And hopefully the trickle-down effect of that is because that sets the offensive sort of tone and tempo for the game. All the other players on the court follow suit. Mm -hmm. So if the main guy is playing bully ball and body slamming people through tables, everybody else has to as well, you know? And I hope that this will make the tenor of the conversation and dialogue a little bit more tenable. You said in the beginning that in your 30s, time is limited. That's usually a thought that you hear from people in their 50s or 60s or 70s. You arrived at that earlier, I think, than most people. Yeah, maybe. I I don't know. I just, I'm feeling it, man. I'm feeling my parents' mortality. They're older, man. When I talk to them, it's like, I can really tell, you know, my dad is 70 years old. He just turned 70. You can really sense it. He came to this country when he was 32 and he had me when he was like 34, 35. And I'm like, I'm that age. And so I'm starting to understand, okay, the half-life of this thing. Mm -hmm. The trajectory. Time is moving in a very interesting way that it didn't in my 20s. I remember 
joining the daily show like seven years ago. I, rem- I, I can picture it, bro. Like I can picture it. It didn't feel that long ago, but it's almost, I mean, it, it could be close to a decade pretty soon. You know what I mean? Do you remember that first day of going into work? Totally. Yeah. I remember the first nine fifteen writers meeting, like, dude, I, I remember it like it was yesterday, you know? And it's so wild. I remember going in and just being so intimidated by all the gingham shirts and Warby Parker glasses and New Balance shoes. And I go, man, <laughs> these guys are so smart. These guys and girls are they're the smartest people ever. And I'm like, how am I going to be funny enough? You know? And it, and it wasn't. Wow, that's. <laughs> I know. It's, you can immediately picture that room, right? There's a lot of Kingdom shirts and Warby Parker frames. And so I, I remember just being like, wow, these, these are the funniest people. And just being so intimidated. I'm, I'm out of my zone. Will John think I'm funny enough? I remember him walking down the hallway and him taking his seat in the chair. And I'm so grateful. One of the things time has given me is time gives you wisdom. And it, it removes the polish and the varnish of all these holy institutions. People just become people. And these buildings just become buildings. I remember when I first started comedy, 30 Rock was this place that, you know, of legends. And when I go to Fallon or Seth, I, I just go there all the time. And it's, it's just an old ass building in New York. Like, it's got a kind of got a, a rickety elevator, just like any other building in New York, you know, it's cool. Time kind of shows you the dirt underneath the fingernails and it, it, it removes things from God's status to just human. And you have the choice of believing that the dirt means it's messy and you don't like it, or maybe the dirt makes it something special, makes it human. Yeah. The dirt makes it, makes it something special and it makes it something less daunting. You don't have to be scared of it. And I lived a lot of my life in fear of just like, are you good enough? Are you smart enough? Are you funny enough? And when you see the imperfections and things, you go, oh, that, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're, they're human just like me. Yeah. Like, oh, they, they have acid reflux just like me. <laughs> oh, he has to go to the bathroom right just like me. Like, he's not perfect, you know? And that's really good. It's really good to see, you know? You're demystifying the mythology of all this. And the fear you felt, to me, has to be so embedded into doing stand-up comedy, just the act of doing it. Does your heart still want to do stand-up? Before the pandemic, I was sitting on my next one-man show, my, my next special. And I cannot wait to get back. And I had a tour planned and all that stuff. And I cannot wait to get back on stage. But um, I did not realize how big of a part of my personality and who I am, that art form is. I just thought like, oh, I do it. I do comedy. But I didn't know it was, it was a huge part of who I am and where I get my purpose. And that is a thing that I've really struggled with. Where do these ideas go when there is an airborne disease that has closed theaters, bars, and, and clubs? Do you just force your family to hear your new material? It's interesting. You know, like, I, I, I'm actually talking to you in the basement. And because COVID, COVID took away so many things from me, we turned the basement into a writer's room. Like Sam, like... I did not realize I've spent so much of my life and especially this past decade being in a writer's room, either riffing and bouncing ideas off of each other to then go on stage to then bounce said ideas off of an audience and then go back to the writer's room. 
you know, so much of 2020 has been about scolding other people and, and putting shame on other people. I'd rather, you know, especially with the birth of my son, I focused it onto the things that I have agency over. And so COVID took a lot of things from a lot of us. And it took away something that I really identify with, the ability to perform. And so I was like, I won't let it take that away. And so I turned this, this brinky basement into a writer's room. And Prashant and I still, we meet here every day and, and we write. And I'm like, you will not take the, the ability for me to riff. You know, and I, I got to be able to do that. Otherwise, I, 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 won't, I don't know how to live, quite honestly. My last question, if your kids listen to this, 10, 15, 20 years from now. What would you want to tell them about this year? Not only about the country, but about who you are, who you were, who you want to become. Yeah, I know if my, if my son discovered this, I'd want him to know. We sh- he should be so grateful that death, illness, and disease did not fall upon our family when it so could have. You know, when he was being delivered, people were also dying on the other floors of the hospital. I really kind of saw the angel of death. I saw mercy being bestowed as well as life being taken away in real time. And I just saw how how fickle that pendulum could swing. Bina and I are like crying and we're, we're, we're celebrating this moment. And there's another couple on the floor above us that are crying because a loved one has died. Who chose these two fates? This blessing wasn't because of anything that I, I, I didn't earn it. Bina didn't earn it. It was just, it just happened. And so I just want him to know if he finds it specifically, uh, we were very lucky and we were very blessed and to be grateful for that. And if, if my daughter is listening to this, I just want her to know she's got to stop beating up her little brother. Like it's, you're two years older than him. Like you're smashing his head into, he's nine months old. Like you can't suplex this kid through Legos. It's not fair. So you got to cut it out. And I hope, I hope that doesn't stay. I hope you're not that person now. <laughs> so those, I, I, that's what I would want to tell him. Well, I'm grateful that we met over this, uh, the, the Zoom of it all, but... I really enjoyed doing these with you, and I I so appreciate uh, your time and all your work, man. I really do. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. Hassan Minhaj, thank you very much. Thank you, brother. All right, man. I'll see you soon. I'm Dolores Huerta. And 2020 was a very difficult year. I am 90 years old. So I grew up during the depression and I know how hard that was for people. I was a teenager during World War II and that was also a very difficult year, but it was really interesting that during World War II, everybody in the country came together uh, to do something for the war effort. People bought war bonds. Uh, as teenagers, we collected metal scrap and newspapers, and we campaigned for people to buy war bonds, everything that we could to help the war effort. But 2020 was just the opposite. We saw a country that was divided around uh, health issues, like wearing masks. That was very sad to see. We have to do so much work in terms of educating people about science, about friendship, 
about community and the racism in this country. But at the same time, we saw so many more people that were brave enough to take to the streets and to protest and to demand that we have racial justice in the United States and that we have police reform, that we end also the sexism and the homophobia, and that we all have to work together to get economic justice. The racial discrimination, of course, we saw it come to fruition when Latinos, Black folk, Indigenous people were the most hardly hit by the pandemic and were more affected and so many more died. We saw that our Senate in the United States of America was so hard-hearted that they would not even vote to give people additional help so that they could somehow survive this pandemic. So we have a lot of lessons that we learned about our United States of America and the things that we have to fix. In terms of myself, I learned that I had forgotten how to cook <laughs> because usually when I travel, I end up eating in a lot of restaurants and I, a lot of other people feed me. So I had to learn, relearn how to cook because I had not done that on a very steady basis before. I learned that I don't mind not having to travel. I love staying home. But then, of course, when you stay home, then you start seeing all of the cracks of the walls and the things that need to be fixed that you have neglected for so long. I was able to make this through, of course, with music, turning on my radio the minute I wake up and having music throughout the day at intervals between Zooming. Of course, I did learn how to Zoom and finally I learned how to use uh, the computer, which I am still uh, trying to catch up on. And then what really helped me is watching all of these wonderful documentaries from PBS. So many things that I, I thought that I knew about the civil rights movement, the indigenous movement, the women's movement, even the Latino movement. There was so much that I didn't know. And then of course, learning about other uh, great movements that are happening uh, throughout the world, issues that affect people throughout the world. So I had a great learning experience. In 2020, I was actually, was able to spend more time with my children even though everybody was locked down, we were able to see each other because often when I travel so much, I don't really have that much time to be able to, to hang out with them. So that was great. I think 2021 is going to be better for us. We're going to have a new president, Joe Biden, and a new vice president, Kamala Harris. And we know that whenever we have a great crisis in our country, that great things happen after th those crises are ended. And so I am looking forward to this. I think that working people will be helped. Everybody's going to be covered with a health plan, immigration reform, two years of community college. And yes, we will pay attention to science. So I am looking forward to this uh, new year, 2021. I think it's gonna be a much better year. And it's, we're gonna meet the challenges and there's gonna be so many more new opportunities for everyone to make the world a better place. Si se puede with 2021. Adios to 2020. Brooke Gladstone, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, relatively speaking. It's been a no good, horrible year. <laughs> <laughs> how about you? Has the work been a solace? <laughs> it has. I can complain about pretty much everything else. 
I can't complain about the podcast. And how about on the media? Well, that's the thing is I have so many friends who feel so intensely about politics. It's a real privilege to be able to talk to really smart people and then edit it down and anchor it in your head. It enables you to make a little more sense of the world. And with any luck, we're able to do some of that for the listeners. Mm-hmm. But it's a relief. I know that when the uh, Twin Towers fell, we were off the air because we were so close to the building and the show was off for two weeks. And no one would let me or anybody even near the site unless they were covering it. And I don't think I've ever gotten over it because I couldn't process it. So how are you processing this moment right now? Well, on the show, I'm the oldest person on the staff, and I have to constantly take the 10,000 feet above ground view, even if it means, hey, you know, the universe is expanding. What are you worried about? Just so that we can keep going. But it's been amazing. I mean, the group is so smart, so passionate, and I've really grown in the job the last year, and it's my 20th year. How have you grown? The stakes are so high. It feels like a year-long emergency. And the amazing thing is is that when you have people who you imagine are waiting to hear what you've learned about what happened or what you've come to find out about what the history of this moment is or what is the value of a life and what are the systems that have created, you know, a shortage of toilet paper. Learning about supply chains was fascinating for me. It's been such an endless series of revelations. Some people may think of that and feel it could be an endless series of panic attacks. For you, it's revelations. And panic attacks. (laughs) They're not mutually exclusive, Sam. (laughs) You're a complicated person. You can have both. Yeah, yes, we contain multitudes. How did you process the month before and now the month after of this election cycle? Well, that was one where maybe being 10,000 feet above ground wasn't quite enough because so many people were saying, you know, this is the end of democracy. This is the end of all of the principles that we hold dear that have been chipped away at over the last four years. I mean, there are a lot of people with guns who are deeply pissed off. When we spoke at the beginning of all this, after Trump was elected with Masha Gessen, whose experience with Putin, she writes for The New Yorker now, was writing for The New York Review of Books then, I think. She said, don't expect your institutions to save you. And it is certainly true that the institutions have been rather a disappointment. And watching the packing of the courts has been obviously alarming. But at least one step, the high court majority Republican would not go. And that is invalidating the foundation of American democracy, which is a free and fair election. When we spoke in May of this year, which feels like (laughs) a lifetime ago, Time has gone very slowly. You said, There are fundamental beliefs that I hold, values and principles. But in terms of the direction of the world, does the arc of justice ever arrive at its destination? Does the arc of justice even exist? I don't know. I do know that this world ultimately will end. 
I know that human beings won't be here forever. I know we have a chance in the brief time we're here to become the best expressions of who we are. You speak of a 20-year anniversary on this seminal show. Do you feel like you are the best expression of who you are? First of all, I haven't even come close. I don't know what the best expression of myself would even be. I know it's always a fight to stay focused and clear. Did I mention this to you the last time we spoke? I actually thought I would leave before the election. I was talking about the best expression of ourselves as a species, <laughs> not the individuals in it who have ebbs and flows and who are fine and decent and even exalted and other times pretty damn petty and venal and craven and we contain those multitudes too. So I'm not an arc. I'm not an arrow. I'm just a stone skimming the water. Sometimes I hit it. Sometimes I fly above it. I do think this question is often embedded in the show about the arc of justice, whether we arrive at that destination. Maybe this is a difference from May, but I don't think so. I think that there is two steps forward, one step back, sometimes one step forward, 10 steps back, and then a leap forward and so on. I think we are better than we once were. But is there a goal? Is there a destination? No. There's just the end. And that's the end of the podcast, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Brooke and Sam. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I love to be constantly faced with... Your own mortality? <laughs> it's, 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 it's an everyday occurrence for me. But, but I'm curious, what has changed for you from May to now? It's a lesson I've learned periodically in the past, but I think never quite so profoundly. Even 9-11, even when I was in Moscow covering, you know, the insurrection of the parliament, even when I was a kid in the war in the streets over Vietnam, never have I felt like I was living in history, like I have in the last several months. The presidency of Donald Trump, despite being astonished by the election four years ago, I didn't believe that we would have another term. What worried me all the way through is what we've revealed about ourselves. The way things were is what brought us to this moment. And if we don't take the lessons from it, and start examining and reconstructing some of the fundamental structures that have created such inequality, they'll just be continued injustice and despair. We've had a global pandemic. Who is worst hit by the pandemic? Who keeps the wheels of the society turning? Because they don't have a choice to stay home, treated as so disposable and how do we recognize their value in ways other than standing outside of a hospital and hammering pots and pans when the, uh, when the shift changes to tell them how much we appreciate them? How do we recognize and honor those sacrifices for those of us who have the luxury of working from home? Often look past and don't see. Have we finally seen them? We have. Will we keep looking? I don't know. You mentioned the luxury of working from home. 
and I'm reminded of something you said in our first talk about this kind of work that you and I do. You said it's such luxurious work that we do. Yeah. Isn't it fantastic to be able to engage in the world, to follow your curiosity, to talk to anybody that you want? I've had so many amazing interviews in the last few years. Just last week, we spoke to a, a funeral director. She was incredible. She showed me so much about the nuts and bolts of confronting our own mortality and how much healthier it would be if we shielded ourselves less from that. I was so excited to consider these fundamental questions of what it means to be human through the prism of this political moment in the heart of this continuously enraged nation during the time of pandemic. I mean, everything sharpened the focus. Things that were abstract became real. For somebody who does a meta show about meta things, you know how we, uh, how do the media address this issue? Let's talk about the myths we have. Let's talk about the narratives about the lives we live. Suddenly it wasn't meta anymore. We haven't been that much about the media these days, especially in the last six months. A narrative has given way to just a fight to understand the nation we're living in and to show some paths toward, well, what frankly amounts to redemption. Do you think doing your show makes you a better person? Yeah, I think I'll be much lazier if I don't keep working. I think I'll be less compassionate if I don't have the opportunity to talk to a wide range of people. I do a lot of head work. Sometimes it just hurts my head when I'm doing the show to try and break things down, arguments down to their component parts so that I can understand them you know, deconstruct it, reconstruct it, explain it to another person. For me, the presence of someone to whom I have to explain something forces me to comprehend them for myself. S.I. Hayakawa once said that, you know, if you can't put something into words, then you really don't understand it. And yet, at the beginning of this year, there was an assumption that you would stop doing this very work. But I'd have to do other work. It may not be staring down these particular narratives. I kind of have a desire to do a, a podcast about what it means to be human. How do you define it? How do you describe it? The technology of it, the blood and guts of it, the history of it, the philosophy of it, the art of it. I have so much curiosity about things. I'd like to be free of the beat. And yet I've been so grateful for it because it's enforced a kind of discipline that I really need. Yeah, I'm nervous and excited about the future. I haven't, uh, I haven't said goodbye to the show yet. I selfishly don't want you to say goodbye <laughs> to the show. Let's say you were making that new podcast about what it means to be human. This year has, I think, taught all of us a little bit 
about each other in many different directions. What have you learned this year? I've seen complacency fall away. So I know that's possible. I know it's possible. I also know it isn't sustainable for everyone. But if communities have been created that can keep it going, and if the media have now turned their lenses onto people that they once ignored, then we're going to see big changes. We've seen it already in effort to look back at history. The New York Times has this uh, really interesting thing it's doing where it's offering regularly in its pages obits of people that were important, that they ignored. Women and people of color who never were recognized for some of the amazing things they did. And of course, the vaccines. The one that originated in Germany was created by two immigrants. I think they were Indian. The one in England was in large part invented by a woman of color. These are incredible things. That needs to be recognized and reported over and over again so that we can start to lose the illusions that some of us have drawn so much comfort from and recognize the contributions of people that some of us would prefer to ignore. The comfort of complacency. Yeah, yeah. The feeling that forever, you know, one will be in the majority, uh, one gets the benefit of the doubt, one uh, is born into a social mobility zip code, which, by the way, seems to be the largest indicator of how much you will move socially or socioeconomically, your zip code. What have you learned? You see, you, uh, you know, this is really new for you. I mean, my kids are 35, and they said, does this happen in every generation? Does this sort of thing? And I said, no, it doesn't. This is like one of those hundred-year storms. You know, there are many people who have compared what was going on in Washington to the run-up to the Civil War, and not without some fairly persuasive precedent. I know that history. You know that history. But to actually live in it, you're the one whose, whose norms were barely formed before— uh, this abnormal time came to pass. You may remember the 2008 financial crash. The fact of the matter is, is that you can't remember 9-11. You've seen a long, slow slide. But, you know, the Trump administration will be a defining point of memory for you. And maybe the Obama administration before that. Here's what I've learned. It's not that bad for my generation because... We didn't exactly like the house we had to live in in the first place. And so I say what's horrible is that people had to die for people to care. That we needed 300,000 people for our country to say, you know who maybe matters? People on the front lines. Our teachers, like my father. Or that we needed George Floyd or Breonna Taylor because I guess that wasn't enough. That is the pain of this year. But the glory of this 
recent period in American history is that we can't hide behind complacency anymore. We can't deny the evidence of our own eyes. I mean, obviously, we've also learned that people can do that. But people of conscience cannot deny the evidence of their own eyes. They cannot deny that people are dying in the street who never should have died. And, you know, you can go back to the Me Too movement. How many men did I hear going, how long has this been going on? All of this shrinking of consciousness that we've had since the 80s, since the Great Society, since the 60s, just the sense that we don't have responsibility for other people, all of that has been swept away in the horror of what our nation allowed to happen. That, to me, is the greatest source of exaltation, is that there's nowhere to hide. We have to face who we are. And if we don't, there'll be somebody there to remind us with video every single day from now on. And either you accept yourself as a as a person who believes in a nation that has no responsibility for its people, or you don't. It does kind of come down to which side are you on. Now, how fast, how furious, I don't think that's where the side is drawn. The side is drawn on the basis of what principles do you hold and how much skin are you willing to put in the game. Do you care or do you not care? To me... Those are the only questions. And will you give up something? Will you share? Will you allow high-density construction in your neighborhood? Or won't you? Will you allow tax money to go to people who need it? Or will you make it just impossible? Will you allow people to get food stamps that pay for 90% of their food per month rather than the 70% or less than that food covers now? Will you ensure that people can get health care that they require in order to lead healthy lives? Will you give a damn that such a huge percentage of American children live in poverty? And will you pay to make that different? Not just you. But every American needs to decide that they have to share. There's no way around it. It isn't about caring. It's about sharing. You don't even, you know, you don't have to feel it here in your chest or in your jaw. You just have to be willing to open your fucking wallet and make a difference. I mean, as a country not as a charitable person, though that certainly helps too, but as a nation. And what we've seen elsewhere is that it doesn't impoverish a nation. It makes it richer. You know what else I've learned? Because of what you just said, I recognize what you do on the show and have done for 20 years, which I want to say to anyone listening, is an unbelievable accomplishment. (laughs) It's a lucky goddamn thing. And... It helps people infinitesimally. It doesn't matter. It does help. And I I feel silly to waste any moment where 
I'm not in service of something that is bigger than myself. Mm-hmm. So I've learned that. Maybe I knew that before, but I don't, I don't think I did. Well, the stakes are different. Speaking truth, it used to be a principle of journalism. Now it is a, an act of engagement, like buying a book or supporting the media that you rely on. Everything valuable has devolved from being a public trust to being an individual responsibility. It needs to be both. Unlike in Europe, where they made it more expensive to send newspapers around, in this country, they created special postal rates in order to make it cheaper to bind the country together. I'm not going to say that media now is much of a binding force, but there was a principle that believed conversation and argument in good faith is what made the nation possible. We have to act in good faith and use our platforms in good faith because, yeah, we're totally privileged to have them. I mean, I don't believe that I'm uh, or that anyone really is indispensable. That's one thing I've seen over the years is, you know, Walter Cronkite was really important and then Walter Cronkite was gone. You know, Ted Koppel, Tom Brokaw, you know, as, as you go down the line, people come and go. But it's fantastic that you've found this, Sam. It really is. And that you love it. You have to love it. I wanted to be an actor when I was in college. And they always said, only do it if you can't live without it. And I went out and uh, I was sure that was me. And then I realized, you know, I can live without this. <laughs> but going two weeks without being able to report after 9-11... That was agony. It really is how I do my best thinking. Maybe the only way I do my best thinking is to be forced to put it into words. The best thing about doing the kind of work that we do, and you mentioned Cronkite goes, Brokaw goes, we go to different kind of talking. Cavett goes, Jack Parr goes, Studs Terkel passes away, does it to the very end. The best part of doing our work is that it forces you to stop thinking about yourself and think about other people. True enough. The fear is creeping decrepitude, that you might not do it as well as the years go by. You know, you may not retain all the information that you need, the notes have to be much more extensive that you create. And it's not so much in the interviewing for me. It's in the editing and of shaping an hour. But I think I wouldn't be so frightened of my creeping decrepitude if I could put my arms around something that is entirely mine. At the beginning of this talk, you said that everything is impermanent. And that is the real truth of existence and, in fact, living through this year. But I want to say as we close, it may be impermanent. I don't know where you'll go. But I am very glad to live in a time where you are doing what you're doing and that we are here just in this moment, even as it disappears, even as people listen to this on the holidays with family, by themselves, 
that moment's already gone. And by the time people are listening, you and I will not be zooming. <laughs> but we are here in this moment. I say this about Kendrick Lamar. I'm just glad he's making music and I'm alive. And I feel the same about you. Thank you. It's always such a pleasure being interviewed by you. It really means a lot to talk to someone who is so open and curious and agenda-free and who just wants to know. I hope you can do this for 20 years. Basically, what you're doing is what I want to do. I want to do individual interviews, edit them, right into them and out of them. Oh, I see. Are you asking me to swap jobs? Is that what it is? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? Well, it's hard to get to New York these days. (laughs) (laughs) Brooke, I thank you so much for indulging me this time and uh, the last time, and hopefully I feel Barrett in the future. Have a great holiday and a fantastic new year, and stay in touch, Sam. Please. Thank you very much. Bye. Hello, this is Terrence Nance. How y'all feeling? My biggest takeaway from this year was that I gotta continue to embrace a healthy balance of stillness and movement, but especially the stillness part, because that's the hard part for me. And, um, you know, mostly what helped me get through is the people around me and just making music, really the healing of myself through that practice. And in 2021, I hope that we stop starting the year in way because it feels like a weird time to start a year. It feels like it should definitely be in spring. March 21st should be the beginning of the year. That's my feeling. No... Recording? Recording. All right. This is Turner Ross. And his brother, Bill. Hey, Bill. Hello. Uh, Bill, what did you make of 2020? Um, Perspective. It was all about balancing perspectives, and they were different from time to time. I started off reading about past plagues and folks' documentations of those plagues and wars in order to make myself feel better. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to put our minds in uh, in a state to move forward as well. You know, it was weird to put out a movie that seemed relevant, even though it wasn't made of this time. And I think it's been really helpful for you and I to think towards the future and where we might be. You know, like in, an, in, in this intangible moment, I feel like it's been helpful to think about what's ahead. Yeah. And not getting mired in these... Uh, Heartaches and hangovers. <laughs> there have been many. Alcohol and weed have certainly helped. But, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's, um, you know, we, for as much as this year is bitched about, 2020 is is a year that you know a lot a lot of people have 2020 every year, and uh, we are we are very fortunate and uh, there's a lot to be here. thankful for. Yeah, and we are thankful for you, Sam, and your brilliant podcast, which is my favorite. Yeah, thanks, man. It's a year we'll never forget.
That was Terrence Nance, Bill, and Turner Ross. And now, before we go, the inimitable Holland Taylor. Hello. Hello, you. Hi. You know, I forgot what the occasion for this was. And then it said for launch meeting, it said holiday special. <laughs> we, you know, we can always just get on a Zoom to talk. I would love to because you're a fantastic person to talk with. You really are. Oh. And you're so young. You're immediately coming at me with some compliments. And, you know, I have a hard time accepting them, but I'll take them from you. When was our, when did we talk for the podcast? We spoke at the beginning of June. Oh, it was probably related to Hollywood uh, press. It was Hollywood time. So in June, I had this odd combination of most incongruent life imaginable in that I was doing some press encounter, well, certainly four days a week, if not every single day. I couldn't come home and close the door. When I came home and closed the door, I had this list of challenging Zoom things to do that were actually some of them going to be broadcast as they were by press work for, for Netflix and for PBS, for Anne and for other things. And, and so it was actually really stressful. And I was also in June, I was still sort of actively frightened a lot. Mm-hmm. Early on, I don't know if I said this in our talk originally, I, I remember thinking it so much. Now is the fear, but coming is the woe. You know, we live in this split time where our community, our American community is so split. I mean, I was an adult in 68. This was not like that. There's a real uh, split. A newly elected GOP congressman a couple of days ago said in a speech, you're my people. You know this is pandemic is a hoax. I'm thinking, wow, you're a public servant and you're calling this a hoax. Of course, the president did, so why shouldn't he? He continues to go on and on. But um, I wanted to say, despite the dire shape of this country, you've had this kind of landmark year in your career. Well, what happened was a lot of things were released in this year. Right. I had that. There was a wonderful young adult rom-com sensation, the PSI Still Love You stories, the Jenny Han stories, and uh, Bill and Ted great adventures of Bill and Ted and Anne, of course, on PBS and Hollywood. There are other things in there too. I mean, it was just an odd time where a number of things were released and had to do all this press, but I wasn't actually making those things in this year. In fact, I I think I finished Hollywood, I guess, at the end of January. And I've done some work on the morning show, which of course not out yet. That was my only work during this pandemic. And that is an experience working without a mask and without any PPE in a work environment. And of course, the precautions are tremendous, but just to be barefaced and to, you know, there's a hundred people on the crew and everyone, the days are very short. So by the afternoon, it's dark. And so we're all sort of scurrying from trailer to makeup to the studio to, to a golf cart, all in our masks and our face shields and our wrappings and then we get into the studio and then we're ushered down a pathway through this group and that group and then into the set where we take off everything well not everything not everything not everything just the tops and so (laughs) and it's a very extraordinary experience and this is 
Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon's show. And um, I don't know that they're used to it yet. I think I'll be going on again at some point to see if they're more adapted, but it's a very hard thing to adapt to. But I think the governor has said that show business people are essential workers because the, I mean, it's, it is the industry of the state and they want it to continue on. I believe you're an essential worker. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm going to be doing a wonderful job in February and, and March. Uh, and that will be weeks of work. And I'm so anticipating being, I mean, I, I identify as an actor. So it'll be so wonderful to work with a company of actors on a really worthy project. But uh, at the same time, I wonder where we are going to be. You're someone who seems to always be busy with projects. Now that we're at the end of this year and things are kind of slowing down, what have you made of your time in this period? Very fucking little. (laughs) And I often have thought, you're going to just thrash yourself with an inch of your life when we're on the other side of this because you have done diddly squat. I've gotten back to to at least exercising regularly and taking better care of myself in that way because that all went to hell. And it partly went to hell because... My hike, if you remember, they shut the parks. Mm-hmm. And I live on a hill that goes into the hills, and it's very steep, and a lot of people use it for hiking. And come the warm months, the spring, the summer, there were literally hundreds of people outside my door. I just literally was sort of driven away from my hike because that was the time when I was still very afraid. You know, and there was the whole who was wearing a mask and who defiantly was not wearing a mask, even in a hostile way. You just didn't want to be out in it. I've had a really difficult time, and I think that you'd think all that time to read. I am much too restless to read. I can't read a goddamn thing. Yeah, you get it. You get what I'm saying. Too restless. Too restless. First of all, I've been not glued to the news the way I was at the beginning. I mean, the first weeks, it was like, you know, you watch that whole block of news every night, and I don't do that at all anymore. I don't even always watch the news every evening. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching much better things. I'm, I'm, I'm not watching any popcorn stuff. I'm not watching anything that's like a guilty pleasure. I'm watching wonderful things. So that's great. So you graduated to that period because I'm still... At least still, I made it to that. I'm deep in law and order right now. <laughs> which, which, by the way, I, I'm here for law and order because I love Sam Waterston so much. Well, with good reason. Genius. With good reason. He is, he is so wonderful and admirable. I mean, I'm so gratified by seeing humans engaged in the human journey. And of course, you know, if that job, if I do do that job, I mean, I'm supposed to do it if it all happens according to plan. I will be swept along into that and then we'll be into spring and we'll be heading towards the other side. Hopefully this vaccine will be universally accepted and we'll be by fall, we'll be in a new world that will look like the world before. And I will have not read a book. Oh, I know. I will have read in books. I will have read in and around books. I have absolutely held, opened, read pages of and looked through and valued and been glad I owned a variety of books. But the restlessness is just extraordinary. And I don't sleep well. And that's that's definitely been wrecked. You don't sleep well. I think I wake with a lot of anxiety, usually in, in the dark. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure it's pandemic. And also... Ironically, there was a job that was that came to me and it was very attractive and it was for someone wonderful. It would require travel. And this was very early on. 
And I, out of fear, did not take the job, partly because the whole atmosphere of the traveling and doing a very challenging part, which would have required all my energy and all my force. And I was in the middle of trying to make a trust to my will and all of that. And, and it was it's quite messy to do that. And boy, you want to do that before you're anywhere near my age. You don't want to do that when you could really like croak like the next week. You don't want to do it when you're old, believe me. So I couldn't get the thing done in time to do that job. So I, I literally, out of fear that I would, you know, something might happen to me on the other side of the country and I wouldn't have a will. I, I just I just thought, I can't, I, I can't. There are people and organizations and things that I have to make arrangements about. And so I thought, this is really, a, this is a challenging period. You really are scaring me with, with this will business. Well, now you know who I am. Well, I know who you are. Because I'm scaring myself. So I wake up in the dark and I start scaring myself. <laughs> and then by the time I get up, <laughs> by the time I get up and I have my absurd coffee mix that I make every morning, I become a different self. I become, oh, I can handle that self. Where were you on election night? And what were you, what were you doing? Sarah and I were watching Four years ago, we were at Radio City Music Hall. We were, I mean, at Radio City, you know, Rockefeller Center in that area, watching on a big screen, and we walked into a restaurant. We thought we'd watch on them. The mood was so horrified and depressed and, and desperate and wild. This night, we were pretty sure the outcome was going to be different. So we watched on television and felt somewhat soothed. Uh, but of course, it's been an incredibly rocky road since then. Well, I don't know what I told you, but I had such anxiety about the night and the ensuing days that I did something admittedly risky, which is I put together a, a film crew, raised some money, and went to Vegas to shoot on election day. <laughs> because I'm I thought... Sorry. <laughs> you're I'm laughing. sorry, but I, I, I am. Yes, I'm laughing, Sam. Laughing at the premise of my film? This is me laughing. <laughs> You can laugh at me. Go on. No, no. Go on. Well, no, now I'm shy about I'm, it. I'm laughing with you. <laughs> Go on, tell, tell me more. Well, I, I had so much anxiety that I thought, here's the best thing I could do. Let me try to make a film, which is the most exhausting exercise. Yes. And completely distracts you. Yes. Even though I was asking people about the reflections on the year, who they voted for. Yes, you have a lot to think about. I got very distracted. While you're doing it. You can partly you can hear what they're saying. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that'll fit. Yeah, this is good. Yes. You're, you're notating and you're you're knowing what shape you're in. Yes. You're knowing you're good. You're you're getting the stuff. You're getting it, but you're paying attention to so many details. Added to that, we shot it on film, so we have a limited amount. I totally distracted my brain. This is like me doing drugs. Very smart. Yes, you incurred great expense by doing that too. So that makes add more pressure. Yes, absolutely broke because of it. But, but. <laughs> yes, you definitely stretched yourself on that one. As the year ends, what have you learned about yourself? And what have you learned about this country? I've learned how much I value the cre creative works by people. How, how nourishing it is for me. And because of the restlessness and the anxiety, it's been easier to get that nourishment from movies and films and stuff that I can be just sort of helplessly caught up in, as opposed to the more disciplined effort of reading. And I can forgive myself that. 
but I'm just so nourished by what we humans have to say about being human. As for the country, I am, like many people, very surprised by the large body of people in this country who, partly the fault of our, our really poor education system, we have a very uneducated populace. A large swath of our populace is kind of ignorant. Not stupid, of course, but ignorant and not cultivated and not trained in civic matters. And it's just such, you know, the, the product of the American public school system in the 50s and 60s was a very different guy and gal from today. And I am deeply surprised by the viability of untruths and conspiracy theories to exist and to be promulgated and, and the different platforms that are putting forth insanity, just insane, irresponsible, dangerous stuff. The availability of it, the preponderance of it, the desire to put it out there. I had no idea that that element was so large in the country. And it's the thing that makes me very fearful for our future. What films have you been watching that, that have been so good? Because I, I need to reinvest. The thing that we're about to watch is something I've wanted to watch to share with Sarah forever, which is Passage to India. David, I haven't seen that. David Lee, what? I haven't seen it. What, 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 what? <laughs> I know. Okay. This is your assignment. But Sarah hasn't seen it either. That's true. You're of an age. Uh, you know, actually, you're younger than Sarah. That's true. I Forgive me. I, I take back all those what's. No, I like the what's. I take, I take back every one of those what's. Passage to India. David Lee. My homework assignment. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I just encourage you to, I, I think you, as I feel about Sarah, I just think it's a remarkable movie and some extraordinary performances. So I haven't seen Passage to India, but you reminded me of something which is that one of the best experiences I've had in a movie theater is going to see Lawrence of Arabia by David Lean in a theater. Yes. Now. Yeah. How about that? But I wanted to ask you, you've seen the recent trend where now Warner Brothers is putting their films online. And yes, there's this kind of worry that movie theaters will go by the wayside. Well, I hope not. I mean, I, saw, I just saw Hanks's picture, The Greyhound. Uh, it's, a, it's a thing he scripted and about a, a naval commander in the Second World War who, who led a convoy through, I forget what it was called, the dead zone, but however long the passage would be to take uh, this whole flotilla of like 100 ships, merchant ships, across the Atlantic. And I don't know, it would normally take like eight days or something, but there was a three-day or three- or four-day period where they could not have air cover. They were too far from America and too far from England. And so there's that, that dead zone where they had no air cover. And they were just trying to get past the submarines, which they could only know a certain amount of information from radar because they didn't have the airplanes who could tell them about it and who could bomb them. And so Hanks made this extraordinary movie about this guy and this getting through the dead zone, leading a convoy through the dead zone. Mm -hmm. I just so suffered. I saw it, of course, on my large screen television. But all I could think of was, God, Tom must be just 
so sad that this is not in theaters because it really called for it. And I hope they re-release it in theaters. And I think all great films that are a great surpassing majesty and beauty of this kind, including, you know, Apollo 13 and things like that, should be re-released in theaters because the, the experience is actually not comparable. So I, I cannot believe anything is going to happen in theaters. But you've heard people... I've heard. ...kind of offering these laments. I have, but I, I just... I just refuse to believe that that will happen. But, uh, you know, I was, I was about to go in rehearsal for Anne in, at the Pasadena Playhouse when, the, when we shut down in L.A. And I hope to still do it, and I know the theater wants to, and I don't know when theater will... I don't know when people will be willing to crowd into a theater again. Me? Right away. I'll come right but, away. <laughs> well, whenever it happens, when I think of... When I sort of imagine for just a skosh that the reality of being in the dressing room and getting ready to give a live performance. My eyes are filling with tears right now, thinking of what it is like to be on stage and, and feel the presence of those in the dark who are attentive and eager and who want to be lifted up and who want to feel things about life. It's At this vantage point, it's a sacred experience. And I think I feel the same way about buying my popcorn at the Lowy's. I mean, I just, you know... I, it's a sacred experience, all of it, and I agree with you. I think that there will be a renewed joy. I just think that one's appetite for connectivity will be not only enhanced, but I think one's gratitude will be as well. I mean, you and I have never met in person. <laughs> but we will. We're just little boxes on a screen. It's just so... I know. I know. At a certain point... You so badly want to reach across the screen and say, hey. Yes, absolutely. You know. Yeah. Your mustache looks good, by the way. <laughs> I, of course, would reach to across the screen and just pull that little bit back from your lip because, you know, you can't cover your lip, Sam. Okay. You really okay. may so, not cover your lip. You <laughs> maybe have to trim that one a little bit. Okay. Uh, is this side? No, it's just, it's, the, it's sort of like, you know, right in this area. Yeah, yeah, okay. You can't have a curl over your lip. No, no, no. no. no okay. There we go. <laughs> I think it's going to mean just a teeny little trim. Now, see, if we were together, I'd say, hang on a second. I've got these tiny little very safe scissors that have these like rounded tips like for, for babies. I'm going to just, I'm gonna, you know, just sit still. <laughs> sit still and let me just do this. <laughs> so, so I'm a baby in this story. Yes, you are a baby. A darling baby boy. 26 and a baby. Yeah. Um, with a mustache. With the, the mustache, I think I look older with the mustache. A little bit. <laughs> I'm sorry. God. <laughs> Couple months. And 26 and a half. <laughs> like, this is what I signed up for. I'm happy to have you uh, roast me a little bit. Um, before we go, since... So much of this show, as you know, is, in my mind, a time capsule of where we're at in any given moment. I'm curious for you, what do you want for yourself and this country next year? It's hard to want something for the country that I don't know how that would come about by some way I can't quite imagine. But I God, I wish the vitriol and the 
the extreme animosities could evaporate by some means, by some influx of goodness from some source, or some greater understanding that happens by some way I cannot right now imagine. And for myself, I absolutely know exactly what I want. Um, you know, I'm, I'm old. I've done my will and all that. I'm in the middle of, or I'm at the end of a pandemic. Can, oh my God. And I, I would love to be able to. You're just, you're coming on here to scare the hell out of me. This is. I, I want to be able, here's what I want. I want to be able to live as though I'm not thinking those things. I don't want to think those things in a way that intrudes on my ability to enjoy the moment. This is the challenge that people have when they you know, arrive at a certain point, and many people handle it better than others. I actually started meditating this year. Sarah and I both did. We took lessons from the same person or direction, yeah, guidance from the same person, and we both started it almost two months ago, I think. I have a good feeling about it, that it may help me be more in the present moment. Because actually, you actually only are in the present moment but your mind can make the experience something so other. I very much wish I could be as carefree as I was in my middle years where I enjoyed my life with a lot of vigor and, and, and energy and without feeling that my dish was being pulled away from me, you know, by time. Oh God, should we cry a tear? Did I make you sad? I made myself a little sad. You have. Well, you know, it's this is life. It's not fooling around. No. It's funny, when I was very, very young, I mean, you know, in my 20s, I used to be very afraid of death. I mean, actively think about it a lot. In my 20s, and that went away. What, what, but just for my own, because this is every day for me. Yeah. What, when does it go away? <laughs> I don't think I can buttonhole it, but I think the more I got involved in really doing a creative life and really caring about uh, turning my attention to and my energies to creative things and to things that mattered to me, it did, it did go away. So I think it's on your immediate horizon, but just throw yourself more and more into things that matter to you. And then the next day becomes about the fruition of that. Maybe I can take my own advice. Because I'm definitely having that kind of fear that really really does intrude. I think it's possible. And I have contemporary friends who have the same kinds of things. I mean, you just don't want to be thinking these thoughts, but you, you know, I guess it's so wonderful to watch animals. They, of course, have absolutely no awareness. Man is but a reed, but he's a thinking reed. And that is all the difference. He's but a reed, the, the weakest thing in nature, like, a, you know, one cell can take him away. A breeze can kill him, but he's a thinking breed, and nature knows nothing of this. And that's you? That's all of us. I mean, we, we're very delicate. We're very frail. A microbe can wipe us out. But we are thinking about the microbe, and the microbe is not thinking about us. You know when I said I haven't read anything this year? I was lying about one thing. I did read one short story. Really? And... There is a passage from it that I think fits what we're talking about, and I can I can read it if if you'd like Please. to read it. Okay, I would love I would love if you would read it. It is by George Saunders. He wrote, "When you reach a certain age, you see that time is all we have, 
by which I mean moments like those overhead geese this morning, or watching your mother be born, and sitting at the dining room table here waiting for the phone to ring, and announce that a certain baby, you, had been born. Or that day when all of us hiked out to Point Lobos. Those baby deer, the extremely loud seal, your sister's scarf drifting down, down to that black briny boulder. The replacement you so generously bought her in Monterey. How pleased you made her with that kindness. Those things were real. That is what, that is all one gets. This other stuff is real only to the extent that it interferes with those moments. Oh, boy. How did you just happen to have that available? How, how is it that you had that? Wow. You'll be copy-pasting that, won't you? Into an email from me. Of course. And on that, and I wasn't going to say anything, but I'm going to say something, and now I'm going to get emotional. Um, your support of this show and what I do on all fronts. Um, I tried to communicate that in email. I failed. Um, oh, Sam. But I just want to say, um, <laughs> I just, it means the world. It really does. And I, and yeah, so I thank you. It's so wonderful to be able to support you, things of value, to send money to organizations that you just know are doing great work is is so wonderful. I mean, it uh, it's it's like these Giving Tuesdays. Let's have you know Giving Giving Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's wonderful to give to things of value. It feels great, and people should understand that they can send five dollars. I mean, if everybody just who felt oh I really couldn't send but a couple of bucks, and so they don't. People have a real generous thing in our genes that when we hear something worthy or someone who needs something who's really worthy or an organization that does great works that needs help, I think probably millions of people think, I wish I had more to give. A dollar is plenty to give. If everybody who had the impulse did that, that'd be so great. So it's a pleasure to support you. I love your work. Uh, the conversations that you have evoke wonderful truths from the people that we're interested in. And uh, you have an uncanny way with people. You have an uncanny way with saying something that is exactly right for the moment, which I kind of wonder what the hell you're up to. Uh, it's, it's just great. It's just great. You have a gift. You have a gift. You should be supported. Uh, if I say any more, I'm going to cry. So, um, uh, Holland Taylor, thank you very much. My pleasure. our show special thanks this week to everyone that came on Hassan Minhaj Dolores Huerta Allison Pill Bill and Turner Ross Terrence Nance Brooke Gladstone and Holland Taylor for more visit www.talkeasypod.com or listen and subscribe to our show wherever you podcast 
As always, this program would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo, illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel, Kevin Kaur, and David Harding. Music by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Our interns are Grace Perkins, Claire Hardwick, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gaberzak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy this year. I have to say, I've heard from so many of you over the past 12 months, and you have helped me make it through 2020. I hope we've done the same for you. Thank you for listening and giving us your time. We don't take it for granted. I'm wishing you and yours a healthy holidays. Take care of yourself. Take care of others. We'll be back in January. Until then, stay safe and so long. Flown around the world in a plane. I've settled revolutions in Spain. And the North Pole I have charted. Still, I can't get started with you. On the Gulf Coast. I'm under par Metro-Goldwyn have asked me to star I've got a house, a show place Still I can't get no place with you The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.